evening and fighting storms and traffic and whatever else that needed to bring you here on a Thursday night, um, we're really grateful. Um, if we could start by giving our authors a round of applause, please. Um, I'll allow them to introduce you, but we're so thankful, uh, Neymar, Jackie, Rowan, for, for you for coming tonight, um, and hopefully we're going to pick your brains. Uh, so if we could start, please, with a brief introduction. Naima, if you could introduce yourself to people who don't know and tell us a little bit about yourself. Certainly. Uh, good evening, everyone. Uh, my name is Naima B. Robert, and uh, I'm an author, an editor, and a publisher. I've been writing and publishing for about 20 years now, and my focus has always been on multicultural and diverse literature for children and young adults. Um, I've written a memoir about my life experience of converting to Islam, and I've, you know, been making noise, I guess, on <laughs> social media and TV and radio and stuff like that for a good 15 years. So um, it's good to be here. It's my first time meeting these lovely ladies, and actually my first time speaking on this topic, even though I've been writing about it for, you know, feels like forever. So thank you very much for having me. Jackie? Yeah, I'm Jackie, Jackie Moradian, um, and I work for a community development organisation called Mosaic Creative. And what we do is um, training, and, and we write resources, and we provide training in something that we call church and community mobilisation. So that's a sort of envisioning church members to have a passion for working in their community and working with their community to make life better for all, but particularly the vulnerable and marginalised. And that envisioning part of it, um, we do through creative Bible study. So this is where the writing comes in, because my, my colleague is an artist and I, and I have a background in drama and a script writer. So I write biblical monologues and biblical sketches to bring familiar Bible passages alive um, through drama. And so I've collected together a bunch of of monologues and sketches over the over my time of writing and put them together in a book called Touching the Cloak and that is my one and only book. <laughs> yeah. Hi, um, so my name, my full name is Rowan Hisayo Buchanan and wrote a book called Harmless Like You that I brought with me like a prop to be like, this is my book. Um, and I have another book called Starling Days that's going to come out this July. Um, I'm primarily a novelist, I do some teaching, I write some articles. Um, in terms of faith, I grew up in a multi-faith household, so my father was sort of Church of England-leaning pantheist, and my mum is um, a Buddhist and believes in Shinto, and we also practice some ancestor worship that sort of stems from the Chinese side of my family. So it was a very open, here is many beliefs, um, home, and I, in some ways probably just because I'm quite close to my mother, ended up connecting with the version of Shintoism that we had in our home quite strongly. Um, but yes, yeah, so that's my very personal religion. The first half of this evening we're going to talk about belief and identity in writing. And we're going to talk for about half an hour, ladies, if that's okay. Um, and then we'll have a Q&A for about 10 minutes before we take the first break of the evening. Um, so ask questions. This is for you. Don't be shy. Um, I'm going to start with asking, 
how you place yourself or whether you place yourself in your writing or and how important that is for you. I remember an English teacher, Mr. Smith, God bless him, uh, revolutionized my world. But the one thing he told me was write about what you know. Is that something, Naima, that you feel quite strongly about? Uh, I have been accused of writing myself into my novels by trolls, no less. Uh, but, but the reason is that uh, if I include a woman who wears the face veil and she's a bit sassy, they assume it's me. They assume I must be. Or she reads English literature or she's super bright. They must think, oh, she's just trying to show us that, oh, you know, it's not everything, as, everything is not as it appears. But um, I think. As a, as a novelist, I feel that there's always a part of me in, in everything that I write. Not necessarily my religion or my spiritual side, but something of me, because I, I feel very strongly that the best of our work comes from a, a very special place within us, a very deep place within us. It could be a place of pain, it could be a place of love, it could be a place of anger, but if it comes from a place of authenticity, it comes through and the character that you're writing doesn't have to look like you at all, it doesn't have to have your name, your background, but that humanity comes through and that lived experience comes through in the work. That being said, um, because I've come from a very sort of multicultural experience, so uh, my parents, my father's white, uh, South African, my mother's Zulu, uh, was born in Leeds, lived in Ethiopia, grew up in Zimbabwe, came back to London for university, lived in Egypt, became Muslim, my husband was Ghanaian, you know, so a lot of influences in there. And I guess I feel it gives me license to slip under the skin of other cultures. So I've been blessed to be able to get away with writing novels <laughs> in the persona of a Somali girl, a Pakistani girl, uh, you know, a black family from South London, uh, you know, a black Zimbabwean girl, uh, Muslim, non-Muslim. And I think that a part of me is in every one of them, in a way, even though they are not me. Um, a part of me is in them. And when my novel writing process is very much about getting under the skin of the character as a human being, but also as a cultural entity, you know, as a, as, a, as a human side, and then culturally what that means, religiously, spiritually, what does that mean? So I guess the short answer is yes. <laughs> <laughs> Rowan, do you think that it's possible to write without putting yourself in the story? I mean, to borrow short answers, no, because it's your voice, but does it have to be autobiographical in a literal way? No, I... I, I don't think it does, but I think, um, to touch on what you were saying, the thing about feeling, like I, you know, I write fiction. Most of what has happened to my characters has not happened to me in my first novel, the um, main character ends up, you know this very early on, it's not a spoiler, um, abandons her son, and my mother is still very much in my life, um, and I have not had any children, so clearly that particular narrative has not happened in my life, but the feelings of loving someone and not knowing how to do it correctly, the feelings of wanting to care for someone and worrying that you are not the right person to do it. You know, those are things that I have felt that I have seen people I really love feel and that felt important to me to write. And I think when you write something that you think matters, you're definitionally putting something of yourself in it, even if 
a reader would not necessarily be able to say, ah, oh, that's you or that's that. Um, I, I actually think it's very funny when people in my life like d try to spot themselves. My, my father always believes he's the best character, like the best, kindest person in the story. He's like, my gender age, he's like, that's me, isn't it? And I'm always like, maybe. Believe that, if you wish. Um, so, yeah. Jackie, do you believe, how authentic does the writing have to be for you to either involve yourself as a character or part of a character or equally detach yourself from that? Um, I think, um, yeah, I mean, being authentic is, is really, really important. And I think, you know, what I need to do through my work is put myself in under the skin, as Namus says, getting under the skin of the characters. And most of the ones that, that I've been writing about are the ones that encountered Jesus. And, um, and it's, I've found it a really wonderful spiritual thing to do is to get under their skin and see how his response to each of the characters was so perfect for that person. And, um, and as you say, actually, who you are and my experiences most definitely have to come through that because, um, okay, these, these characters were different, they had different experiences. I mean, I've written about, for instance, the, the woman who touched Jesus' cloak and she'd been bleeding for 12 years. Well, and was ostracized by society. So now I don't know what it's like to bleed for 12 years, but I do know what it's like to feel lonely, and I do know what it's like to feel rejected. So those parts of, of my life come through when I'm, I'm writing about her. And again, like the woman at the well, she'd been divorced five times, she'd had five husbands, she was living with somebody else now. I'm a divorcee, I haven't been divorced five times, but I know what it's like to be a divorcee. So, so you bring all those experiences to the writing. Um, yeah. Do you so. think it's ever possible to write about an experience that you haven't had? Um, so I'll ask this mm. to all of you, whether mm. you've done that and how difficult it's been. I mean, there's a lot of talk at the moment about, you know, for example, cultural appropriation or co-opting somebody else's experience as your own. But as a writer, surely you have a responsibility sometimes to bring those experiences that you may not have had to light. Is that something you've done? One of the things I think about fiction, I don't know if this is a direct answer to your question, but it's really interesting, is you, we all make certain choices, right? Down the path of life, we say, we're gonna do this, not that, whatever. But you think, like, what if I did that? What if I had gone the other way? And so... Like a sliding doors moment. Kind of, yeah. I think fiction lets you play with that. Yeah. And, like, there's a scene in this book, Kath's yeah, Spiller, um, in her family, she, this character is 100% Japanese, whereas I'm mixed race, so I'm partially Japanese. I've never been 100% Japanese. And so I had to think about what that would mean, how that would change. And I did talk to members of my family, for instance. Um, and it, lots of it takes place in the 1960s where I wasn't around. But there are also those moments that are very specifically the thing you didn't do. So speaking of faith, her family, like my family, um, leave food with every meal, like my mother's side of the family, to our ancestors. So you take it a little bit and you leave it to them and you clap three times and you offer it up to them. And I remember being a kid and being really angry that they got to eat first. 
I was like, I'm hungry. I'm not alive. Um, I'm alive. Um, and I never like stole their food or took the food first. But at one point, when the character is very angry in the book, she takes the food first. And it's not a thing that I've done, but it's a thing that I wanted to do. And I think sometimes there's a power in that, in the opposite choice. Mm. <laughs> if that. Yeah, yeah, completely. No, no, you're nodding. Yeah, no, I, com- I completely had <laughs> that thing of allowing your characters to dare to do what you never dared to do <laughs> in that moment of freedom. Um, but I mean, I think all my work has been about writing other than myself. Um, and, you know, the whole issue of cultural appropriation is a sensitive one. And that's why I, I said, you know, I have been fortunate to get away with writing characters that are not me. I have people asking me all the time, are you Somali? Are you Somali? Are you Somali? Because the novel was a Somali novel, you know, to all, for all intents and purposes, the protagonist is Somali, her whole family is, it's very steeped in the Somali experience and the culture. But the only way I was able to do that was literally copious research just so, so much research. And I think a lot of people don't, I don't know whether everybody has the same process, but certainly for the types of books that I write, I know that I can't get it wrong. I cannot afford to use the wrong phraseology, to, to, to name the wrong food, uh, you know, to, to even the relationships that are typical within that community, I have to get it on the nail. I have to get it on, you know, I have to nail it because I know that that community is going to be looking for a sign that she either got us or she was trying something and it didn't work. Um, so research is a really, really big part of my process. So I spent time on forums, which was great fun. <laughs> that was crazy. <laughs> crazy, crazy, right? But those what, what days, kind of forums? Somali youth forums. Okay. <laughs> and I just saw like so much of the, the, the culture that sort of, it's not the high culture. It's like the lived cultural experience of Somali youth, the kind of things they would argue about the way they would insult each other, which was a lot, <laughs> but the kind of things that they would say, you know, when they were insulting each other. Their views on lots of different issues. I did qualitative research, I read books, uh, I watched films. I do that for all my books because I know that in this area, if you think that I can wing it, you know, like I've got enough knowledge already to kind of make it up, I, I know that I can't get away with that. So, so for me, writing about other than myself is standard, really. But I know that I can't just jump in there with a story from my head. I need to make sure that I've got it right uh, and that it's true to their experience because my main goal is for them to see themselves in the book that I've written and it's always been the goal for me is that if a young Somali girl or a young Pakistani boy or you know a mixed race girl from South London reads the book they see themselves and that I think has always been the issue for me and why I started writing so that young people who are who were pretty much marginalized and were not represented at all in literature pick up a book it's a great story, it's fun, it's funny, but they see themselves. Mm-hmm. And that visibility and that being acknowledged and their experience being acknowledged it has been like the driving force really behind all my writing. So it's very far from autobiographical, it's nothing to do with me. It's literally what's going on with you, what's, what's happening in your world and how can I convey that so that you feel heard and seen and others can see and hear you mm-hmm. through this book. And that's quite an undertaking because you yeah. have to get yeah. it right. Yeah. So Jackie, in mm. terms of researching for writing, yours feels like it's quite complex. There aren't really? forums. It, uh, is it complex? Is it difficult? I, I'm 
I'm quite surprised you said that because I think I think listening to these guys, I think I feel that my my job is is kind of simpler because I'm just following a story that's already been written. I'm not making up a story. I'm I'm taking the 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 scripture. I'm taking the Bible and I'm taking the characters. Um, but and finding that in scripture these the stories are just written as a sequence of events. You don't you don't enter into the feelings in scripture if you're especially the gospels. Um, so that's that's what I'm trying to do. I'm trying to take these characters whose whose lives were transformed, transformed forever, and yet their emotions are not even mentioned, the feelings are not even mentioned. So that's what I'm trying to do is trying to get under the skin and feel those emotions and like neighbors just said that i guess again the real aim apart from putting myself into the story is is that other people um see themselves in it too and see their own story because it's not just the writing for me as well um these these monologues are meant to be performed as well so you take a piece of scripture and then you perform the monologue and then the discussion comes from that and people see themselves in it and they see more clearly what the role of that this is the big aim they see more clearly the role of the church in community that's that's is it challenging to bring those characters to life um for perhaps a different audience yeah well d different than a christian audience yes. do you mean yeah um well uh, it, that's a really good question mm -hmm. <laughs> um and I guess I wrote, the reason I wrote them was to envision church members, but what I'm finding absolutely thrilling now is that the people who have, we have been training, are going off and doing it themselves and um, are, t are taking it into the community and actually doing the monologues. Um, I heard recently about a lady who did The Woman That Touched the Cloak with a, a bunch of single mothers. So, she, so these were completely non-church people. And she just did the monologue with some single mothers, and she said the discussion that came out of it was absolutely fantastic. It was a lot of their lives came out, and they were able to share together and sort of strengthen each other. And that, for me, is is thrilling. That 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 just those monologues can do that for people. That was feel so, very satisfying mm -hmm. as a writer that you were able to do that. Yeah. So let's talk about feedback and, and sort of audience response and reader response. Um, I want to talk, I want to touch very quickly, I'm aware of time, although this bit is probably my favourite bit. We talked, we touched uh, on it a little bit earlier when we were talking about the process of writing, which I think budding writers would be interested in. Um, Everybody goes about it a little bit differently, we established. Um, so, Rowan, talk us through uh, an idea that you have and how that is processed and how that turns into a writing that you've sent to the publisher. Okay. Um, I think I'll talk about a short story that I wrote. So, um, generally speaking, well, more general point, generally speaking, I tend to know the beginning and the end and I have no idea how to get from A to B but I have a very strong vision of what's them and I just, the work is finding out what happened and how do I get there but sometimes um, you get asked to write something like on commission so an editor at Granta wrote to my agent and said would Rowan like 
to write anything for our Halloween issue. And I love Granta, so I was like, yes, I would love to do this. I'm so excited. And then I realized I'd never written anything about monsters. <laughs> <laughs> Nothing. Um, and I didn't know where to begin it all. And I had quite a short deadline, so I was very worried. Um, and what happened was I was talking it through actually with my partner about like, oh, what do I do and da da da, and you know, go off on tangents. And I said, I really hope ghosts aren't real, not because I'm scared of ghosts, but because I don't want to be a ghost. I just don't want to be hanging around being like, uh, what's, ha you know, what's happening in the world? I can't do anything about it. Uh, um, and he really sweetly said, oh, but if we were ghosts together, it wouldn't be so bad. And I thought, yes, but actually, maybe it would be terrible. What if you were trapped with like this one person forever? And then, and so, and because like that idea excited me and I was curious about it, um, I ended up writing a short story about um, these two ghosts who are trapped together in the honeymoon suite of a hotel. Um, and various things happened, you find out how they died and sort of the haunting, it's from one of the ghost perspectives, so the sort of haunting they do. And, um, and it came from a place of me just being curious and excited. And I think that translates when you know everything, then it's not interesting. Or for me, when I know everything, I just, it doesn't come alive. It has to have that moment of, huh, I wonder. And it's just exploring and then editing. So much crossing out afterwards until <laughs> you get to a story that feels tight. Are you a ruthless editor? Are you sort of Edward Scissorhands on your writing, or are you quite precious about the bits that you want to keep? I think I just do it for a very, very long time. If I edit for twice as long as it takes, twice, three times as long as it takes me to write anything. I don't know if that's vicious or just self beating. <laughs> but yeah. Jackie, what's the process like for you? Are you sort of bullet pointed in where you want the story to go? or? Well, I think because, uh, no, I'm not bullet pointed, I don't think so. What I do is I read around the passage. So I read the passage that's con concerned with the story. And then I read around the passage what happens before, what happens afterwards. Can I bring that into the monologue at all? What's going on at the same time? Um, and then um, I guess, you know, my, my aim is to bring this character alive and help people see things, a familiar thing, in a different way and in new perspectives. In a, you know, that makes them want to do something about it. And that's, that, that's what is I Is it do, more so. like heart-centered? Is it more like something that comes from within? Or is it something more cerebral, like planned out in your mind, do you think? Sorry, I'm just curious about this. <laughs> I don't think. I don't, yeah, I think it's much more from the heart, actually. Um, because I guess it, it's not an end in itself. It's, it, it leads into a discussion. The whole idea of it is, is to provoke discussion and to have questions around the passage that help people see, actually, this is the role of the church in community. This is, this is where we're trying to get to, really. It's not, it's not an end in itself. It, it's not just for people's enjoyment, it's to say, actually, I guess this is part of my faith, you know, my faith is that um, I, I, I'm, a, I'm a follower of Jesus, and I believe Jesus didn't just come to die, he came to show us how to live. And so these stories show 
how he responded to people and how he treated people. And that, I believe, is the way we're supposed to treat people as well. So that's what I want to come out of this. And it's easier to do that if you get into the feelings of the characters that he met and transformed. Because um, then you can say, for instance, after, after I've written a monologue, say, about the woman who touched the cloak who'd been who'd been shunned by society. Okay, so who in your community feels like her? Who do you think feels like her? And how can we do something about that? So that's, that's the end. That's the end <laughs> result. That's where we're trying to go with it. Yes. Naima, what's the writing process like for you? Is it arduous? Is it sort of complicated or do you have a very simple vision of, of where you want the narrative to go? Um, I would say a lot of my novels were started as a dream. It sounds really kooky but it's true. <laughs> uh, I'm, I've, I see my novels in my mind's eye. That's that. It's like a film. Um, so uh, from Somalia with love I went on a retreat with some Somali girls and it was my first time in their presence and I was just like vibing off their energy and curious about these girls and their lives and their backgrounds and you know I was listening to them talking and walala and all the rest of it and that night I had a dream about a girl whose her name was Safiya and she was 14 and she was a poet and she didn't know her father and suddenly he comes back into her life and it was just like mm -hmm. as a dream I called my agent and I said, I've just had this idea for a story. I don't know of any teenage novels with Somali protagonists, even though there are so many young Somalis in school, etc. Um, you know, what do you think? And so she, she really liked the idea because I, I wanted to explore what would happen. So the dream didn't tell me what would happen. It just set up the scene, if you like. And then it was a question of, well, how would she respond to that? How would her mother respond to that? Who else is in the family dynamic that would respond differently so she's got the wayward brother and she's got the responsible older one and you know and then then it kind of rippled out into an exploration of the dynamics of the community etc but for for me a lot of my novels start as a dream and then i kind of like follow the pattern in my you know follow the vision in my head uh, and then i plot i plot a lot <laughs> so um from Somalia with Love, I didn't plot a lot because I wrote it in six weeks. It was done. It was a very, very easy novel to write. I don't know how. Um, but others, again, if there's a lot of research involved, you do all the work beforehand, the research, getting under the skin. And then once you get into the story, you feel quite sure that I think I've got this. And then you're able to explore the characters and their motivations and what they would do. But I think for all my books, it's pretty much been, that's been the process. Um, I don't find it arduous at all. Um, I'm, I'm, I feel, I enjoyed the writing, you know, uh, and yeah, the, the, the writing, it's, it's fun because, you know, you write something and you just think, yes, yes. <laughs> and then, of course, sometimes you write something and it's like, oh, just move on, you know, which is part of the process and it's perfectly fine. And, you know, I've been through the process of writing a full draft, thinking I'm done, reading it again and being like, chop, 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 you know, because this part's not good or that part doesn't work anymore. But that is the novelist's work. That is the work that we have to do in order to end up with the finished product. So I think you probably take a lot of time in the editing because you write more freely in the first draft. But at the end of the day, we all have to tighten up and we all have to put in the work if we want to bring something polished out of whatever's going on in our heads. So who do you show that initial first draft to, if anyone? 
who are the people that you trust to give you some very honest feedback as opposed to the, the yes people around you mm-hmm. this is great and you're like, oh, no, I know that's not good. Um, so Rowan, who, who is that person for your people for you? Um, well, I'm slightly dyslexic, which is an odd choice for a novelist, but there we go. Um, and so I, um, the first person I show it to is actually my mum, because she's the only person I want to read it and go, why are those two words in the wrong order from each other? And I know you meant to put that comma in that word, but you've put it on that word. Um, so I, she very kindly reads the whole thing, including the sex scenes, um, and tells me, you know, um, what, you know, if I've done anything. And that's a very, like, just uh, making sure it is all clean, all makes sense. And then I have a couple of friends who are writers or who are interested in writing um, from way back who I will show things to who I trust to be bad in front of and who know that what I want them to do is not tell me it's great because then what do I do next? That's not a present. It's a gift when someone's like, oh, that bit isn't working. They're making you smarter. Um, it's such, yeah, so yes, it's very, that's very wonderful. And then finally, far, far later, I show my agent. Um, and yeah, so it's sort of, a period of moving out and now currently my second book is in proofs which is sort of like the version that you won't see in shops but like reviewers get and bookshops get to see if they want your book in shops so those are the most frightening people um, other than like the general public uh, so it's sort of basically I get more and more scared every time yeah. Jackie what's been the most positive feedback that you've had from a piece of writing I think um, the one that really sticks in my mind um, was because uh, I'm very lucky I get to do the work I do, the training overseas as well as in this country. So, and, I, and one that sticks in my mind was when we went to South Africa and I, we worked with a group of Mother's Union members. These are fantastic. Mother's Union are such a force for good all over the world. And they, they were a fantastic bunch of women there. And um, I did the monologue of the woman at the well and so I, I performed this and afterwards my colleague Bill he always says so what did you see, what did you hear, how do you feel and the response was I, f- I want to cry and then someone else says I think we're meant to tell our stories and what happened after that monologue was that everybody started to tell their stories including me because the woman at the well was this woman who'd had five husbands she was living with someone else now she was totally ostracized by her society um and i told my story um because i'm a divorcee and i i talked about that and some of the, and then these ladies started to talk about their stories and it emerged that so many of them were in um bad marriages um, but, but what happened was they were able to share that with each other. They were able to comfort each other. They were able to strengthen each other, then go back into their marriages at the end of the workshop, back into their communities to serve their communities, but strengthened by what had happened. And f- for me, that's, that was the best kind of feedback that I could have wished for. So that's the one. Naima, you mentioned trolls earlier. Um, in a in a world of immediate information and communication, um, who trolled you, and, and what did they say? 
Should I give you names? Twitter <laughs> handles? <laughs> we'll leave the names aside. No, it's okay. <laughs> to be honest, I, I, I feel really blessed because I haven't had anywhere near any... You know, it's, it's, when I say trolls, it's like one or two. Who, but they but they're consistent. So every Amazon review, they're there. You and, know? Does, and does that impact you and your confidence as a writer, or does it make you second guess what you might put out next? I think for me, if I'm one hundred percent honest, I know that I'm not everybody's everybody's cup of tea, and that's fine. Initially, it was a bit difficult because I'm going into a genre that is, you know. It's aimed at young people, and it's supposed to be gritty, it's supposed to be real, it's supposed to be, you know, yeah, real. But I'm a mother, and I'm a conservative practicing Muslim, so there's always a very thin line. I'm being 100% honest here. Uh, some people read my books, they see me, and they'll read a book like Boy vs. Girl or Black Sheep and be like, what was going on there? And I have to say, I have to be true to the story, I have to be true to the reality of the characters. I can't write from behind my veil because then I'll just be talking about my life and no one cares about my life. My job is to, again, get under the skin. So there's on one side, there'll be people who will say that was too much. Okay, that was too gritty, it was too real. Give us an example of, of what was too much. Oh, gang violence, uh, you know, girls being used for sex, uh, you know, illicit relationships, drugs, everything's in there, trust me, like it's bad. <laughs> <laughs> but I think, I, but I don't even know why, it wasn't my intention to kind of go street with it, but those are the young people I knew. So when I was trying to reflect reality, that's what I knew, and that's, that's what I saw them dealing with. So when you have you know, a, a young guy who, for example, is like smoking weed with his friends, that's a reality. That is what a lot of Somali girls know that their brothers do. So I can't then write a book where that doesn't ever happen, mm. or no girl meets up with a boy secretly, as if it doesn't happen, because it does. So on the one hand, there'll be those who will say, I don't like this book because I have been accused of promoting haram relationships and promoting bad stuff. And on the other side, there are those who feel that I'm too conservative and that I'm coming from a place of um, uh, maybe judgment or maybe I'm not gone far enough. So one person did accuse me of being heteronormative and, <laughs> and basically saying that, you know, uh, I'm, yeah, I'm not, I've not gone far enough. She was like, why have you not written a book about a Muslim lesbian? Like, why are you not taking it that far? So you've got, you know, you've got those two. So for one side, it's not edgy enough, and for others, it's too edgy. And I guess because of how I present, people do have a certain expectation. So they see me, they expect a kind of book, they read the book, they see me, and they're like, what happened there? <laughs> so, um, so yeah, that's, that's it. It hasn't been, like, toxic or anything, but, you know, there are those, those tensions, I think, within, within the, the space. At this point, we're going to open it up to questions for the next 10 minutes or so. Um, this is your evening. Take advantage of our authors, of our panel. Uh, does anybody have a question to start with? Lady here in the blue. Um, what, sorry, what's your name? My name's George. Um, I'm just wondering how um, we're seeing like, the conversations around sort of inclusion and diversity that I've heard they've changed quite a lot recently, some for better, some for worse, but things feel more popular popular now or more accessible to talk about and I'm wondering if you've sensed any is there any a change to work you've probably done for quite a while have you noticed people being more enthusiastic or commissioners being more interested in you or more negativity based on the kind of conversations that are happening more broadly in society 
I haven't been um, a novelist for that long, but my book came out um, in 2016 when I think some of these conversations were just beginning to start. And the, there are two protagonists, one of whom is half Japanese, um, half French-Canadian, and the other one of whom is 100% Japanese, grows up in New York. And I was writing those stories in some ways because I grew up with stories of the 1960s and 70s and what it was like to be, um, well, in my family's case, half Chinese, half Japanese in New York, and I didn't see it represented, but I didn't think of it as a hugely political act or a hugely strange thing to do. It was just, this was a story I wanted to tell. These were these characters. That's what they were born into. I didn't... It wasn't that I imagined them as blonde first and then as a political act changed them. Mm -hmm. um, but I noticed sometimes very kindly and very positively that being seen as like a very political act. And I think that that I didn't realize going in that that was going to be how it would be seen. Um, that writing someone not the mainstream would be taken that way. And I now understand that and it's changed and but I do hope that eventually we get to the point where we write people from different backgrounds and it's because that was right for those characters or right for us as authors um, and that someday it can stop being a political act even if it is now. Mm -hmm. I, don't know. Um, I think so that's a really really interesting question. I was just at the London Book Fair today and obviously the issue of diversity in literature, particularly children's literature, is, is, is huge. Uh, the Carnegie Medal is reviewing its policies on diversity, so we were part of a panel discussing these issues. Uh, and I think definitely the mood has changed in the sense that the conversation is being had. And the audiences are there, and publishers now know that. I think there was a time when publishing didn't really believe that there was a readership in black communities, in Asian communities, in non-dominant culture communities, whereas now they are aware that there is that audience. Um, and I just hope that you know writers from the margins can up their game and capitalize on that, because really those stories from the margins should be told by people on the margins. It shouldn't be a case that a dominant culture writer thinks, what should my next book be about? Oh, nobody's written about a traveller kids or travellers. Oh, let me, let me do that one. You know what I mean? Uh, because there is there's definitely, everyone knows the publishing, publishing industry is dominated uh, by a sort of white middle class, uh, you know, whatever you want to call it. Uh, fair enough. But those voices from the margins need to be sort of called into the fold so that the stories that are being told from those margins are actually authentic um, and, and are coming from a place of authenticity rather than ticking a box. You know, we've got the black book, we've got the, the gay book, we've got the this, you know, and I think it, I think it is changing. I see, I see a lot of change happening uh, and, and a lot of um, publishers who are moving away sort of breaking off and establishing their own publishing houses based on those types of, of principles uh, who are getting a lot of attention. So I think that it's, it's, a, it's a good time to be a writer with a unique voice, let's put it that way, <laughs> you know, with a unique perspective that's not already been heard so many times before and that you are bringing something fresh to the space um, because you're coming from a different perspective. And I think that, I think that, I think it's moving in the right direction personally, yeah. Another question. No question. I have five minutes. Oh, go ahead. <laughs> when, what do you think the role of um, when you talk about dominant cultures? It's a really interesting phrasing, not really heard or used before. What is the role of the, the 
writers, I guess it can apply to all your work, who maybe don't come from um, a minority background, what is their role in what they then choose to write? Or like you say, because then there's, you know, dominant culture writers can capitalise on it. So you've just said, oh, there hasn't been a book about traveller mm -hmm. or whatever. Um, what can the role of those more mainstream writers be in, in this, in the conversation that we're having? May I, may I answer this? Yeah. Just, it's a really good question. Um, I think it kind of goes into a discussion about white privilege and mm -hmm. that question, well, what can white people do about racism? Yeah. And I think the first thing is, and, I, and we, we have this community, we have this discussion in the Muslim community about racism as well. Um, and the first thing that we say is just have some humility in the sense that recognize your privilege. So recognize that you have your own perspective that is not universal. And I think that's a thing that a lot of writers of color feel frustrated about because it is, it's as if the sort of the dominant culture or the, the, the white middle class experience is the norm and everything else is margins, you know, is, is kind of like, you know, something different, something exotic, something new, when that's not necessarily the case. And also that the concerns of that class, if you will, are universal. And again, that's not the case. Um, so I think one thing is the humility to know that if I did want to go into this space, I need to go in there to learn, not to teach, because that's a big thing is that if I'm going to write about this community, it can't be from a standpoint of, I'm gonna go in there, show them how it's done, or I'm gonna show them what they need to change about their family dynamics or anything like that. You know, if I'm going to write about a community, which you're free to do, but go in there with a mindset that I need to learn these people, I need to recognize my own prejudices about whoever these people are, and go in with humility, ready to connect with them on a human level, on a, on, a, on a true level. And then as a novelist, as a fiction writer, I can probably elevate that experience to something of real beauty because I have skill, which not everybody has. But for, that, for you to be able to elevate this experience or evoke this experience, you know, with the literary skill that you have, it has to come from a place of deep knowing, and you can't have deep knowing of a culture, of a people, of a religion, without going in there with humility and really going in there ready to learn and serve. I, that's, that's what I think. Do you write with a reader in mind? Because when you talk, Naima, about representation, I grew up reading Judy Bloom or Sue Townsend, that I can't name you a single Muslim figure, and yet in my house there was Salah, there was Ramadan, there was there were all these things that were not being written about. So when you write, Rowan Jackie, do you have the reader at the heart of your writing? Uh, well, there are not, you know, there are not a huge number of part Japanese, part Chinese, part Scottish, English families. I think if I said, I just want to write for people who look exactly like tiny me, I would not sell any books. Um, that is sadly the truth I must face. Um, but I think sometimes I'm writing for people who have felt things that I have felt for maybe very different reasons. Um, my editor at the, you know, who, um, who published this book and published my next book, when she was, they did this lovely thing where there was an auction and they said, please go with us. And I was like, this is the most amazing thing that's ever happened to me. Um, but one of the things she said is she has an English family, but she grew up 
in Scotland and then she moved back to England and I have to say when I first saw her I was like you're a lovely blonde woman um you must always have fitted in you must always have felt at home and she was saying I really connected with your story and this the story of this character who doesn't feel home and who doesn't know the codes that she needs to operate in this world um and I was very moved by her telling me that and I think that that is my ideal is not necessarily that somebody who somewhere on the street could point at and go oh you are the same as Rowan um is reading it but that somebody will read the book and um it will connect with something or some part of their own story um I met a guy recently um, at a writing retreat and he read my book out of kindness out of like you were the person at a writing retreat and then this book he told me that afterwards he called his mother he hadn't spoken to in eight years or something um, and I cried sorry this happened fairly recently so I'm like still kind of <laughs> um, um, because he he was just going to get there anyway I mean it wasn't I'm not you know that, that good I wish I was but, you know, but, it's, but it's more that like he said like it, it reminded him it helped him tackle something in himself that he was feeling. And I really, I think that's why it's not a diary for me, why I do need to find readers, why I want to find readers to make those connections. Um, I'm sure you know. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, so this part of the evening, um, we're going to touch a little bit on what we've spoken about before, but there were some, I still have questions. I'm sure you have questions too, but I have questions. Um, and I want to start with, how do you know you're good enough? Everybody, I'm sure, has a story that they want to tell. Everybody feels like they, they would want to write a book, perhaps. Um, I, I have felt for some time now, but I've never really quite had the confidence to, um, to write. You know, we're talking about 40,000 words. You know, how do I get all of that down on paper? What was the moment for each of you? What was the epiphany where you suddenly thought, I'm going to do this. I know I want to be a writer. Jackie, what was that like for you? Um, I think it... I think it because it's, it's not... It, it's, a, it's part of what I do, writing. It, it's an important part, but it's... So I wouldn't say, oh, I want to be a writer, but it, it's just... Um, I, what I do is I, I'm a community development training consultant, but writing and performing those dramas is, is the biggest part, I think, for me, of what I do. Um, what, when did I know? I, um, I think it's when you see people change as a result of it. I think that's been the biggest thing for me. Um, and, um, yeah helping people to see things in a different way and see clearly what their role is um, because of, of a character's experience that you've been able to bring to life um, whether it's me who's performed it or someone else has performed it or it that doesn't matter but I think seeing people change in that way and seeing how it affects their hearts um, that's when you think actually I want to do I want to do this more but also not just that, it's a way for me personally as well. I find it a, a hugely a spiritual act, writing and getting under the skin of these characters because it, gets, it brings me closer to God too. So for me, it's, um, 
my, because my faith is about a relationship with God, it's hugely important that I feel close to him, and this is one of the ways that I do that, is by getting under the skin of the people he met and interacted with and transformed. That's, yeah. Naomi, your first book, when you saw it published and, and available, what did that feel like? I think um, I never thought I could write a book, actually, even though I was, you know, good with English at school and, you know, I used to write crazy stories when I was a teenager. Um, but children's books, which is how I started, were very much... Um, I don't want to say an act of defiance, but they they were born of a desire for us to see ourselves and for us to be seen. Um, so so I kind of wrote in that way for that purpose. And the first time that I was called upon to really say, okay, I'm a writer, was when um, I was I, I got the well, I got offered a contract to write my memoir. I don't think I would have written my memoir if I hadn't had that because it just wasn't on my mind. But what I felt again was. The narrative about Muslim women in the UK, in particular, was 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 so far from my lived reality, and I really felt that somebody somewhere needed to speak for what we knew to be the truth. You know, the good, the bad, and the ugly. But like from a place of knowing, this is who we are. This is what we live. This is what we go through, um, and 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 for that to be out there as well not just, you know, Daughters of Arabia and Not Without My Daughter and kind of the sensationalised uh, look at the plight of the Muslim woman. So it was very much on, on, on a basis of principle that I wanted to share this story so that people could understand and come into our world and see and have, get a different perspective. And, you know, for that book to be published by, I think it was Transworld, Random House, and for me to go on, you know, Good Morning TV with, um, what's her name again? What's the name of the lady on Good Morning TV? Holly? No. No. Lorraine Kelly. That's it. Lorraine Kelly. You know, and, and, and you know, have that interview with Lorraine Kelly and be on, you know, Newsnight and, and, and uh, Moral Maze and all of this because of this book that I had written. It was just something I had never, ever imagined for myself. And then to have people coming and saying, your book changed my life, your book changed the trajectory of my journey. Um, you know, I changed in this way, that way, that way, because of what you wrote. And, you know, I believe that everyone has a story inside them. And that's what I, that's what I teach, that everyone has a unique story to tell. And the first thing to do is to give yourself permission to tell it. Once you believe in your ability to tell a unique story and that that story matters, I just believe everything is figureoutable. Not to say we can all be novelists because that's something different. <laughs> novelists is a, is a different type of craft. But to be able to communicate through the written word, I believe that is available for everyone. Levels, but we can all speak to each other, right? We can all speak, we can all communicate, and we can tell our stories, and we can dig deep, and we can talk from the heart. As long as you can do that, you can do that through the written word, in the genre of non-fiction anyway. Uh, so I believe that everybody has a story, and everybody can write. It's whether they're prepared to put in the work of firstly believing in themselves, and then the actual graft of sitting down and getting your story down. Rowan, how did you know it was time for your unique story to come through. Okay, so this is in some ways is, I sadly I did not have an epiphany where I was like, ta-da, I am unique and I will write this. I wish, maybe, someday. <laughs> um, but 
it was sort of a gradual process. I always loved books. I loved reading. I have a younger brother who was very easily bored, and he would hit me unless I told him stories. So there were a lot of stories. <laughs> I never knew how to end them, so everyone got exploded by an asteroid. And I was like, they're all dead. It's over. Um, and um, I, you know, when I went to university to study, I studied in the states, and I went to study economics because that was quite practical. And I had a, you take sort of you can take extra classes in America. And so I had a friend who knew how much I loved reading, who was like, "Oh, why don't you just take this like sort of creative writing class?" And I did it, and I was like, "I love this so much. I want to keep doing it." And so I took more and more creative writing classes, and I ended up doing what's called a double major. So you basically major in both things. And I sort of was like, "I'm still doing the economics. It's still practical." <laughs> um, and then I had a teacher who really believed in me and who said. There are funded grad school programs where you can essentially be paid to read and write for two years and tell stories. And I said, "Okay, I'm doing that." And then I'll go figure out my normal, boring life. And I was there, and I was again very lucky. I had very supportive professors who said, "Okay, you should probably get an agent." Um, and because I decided to write a novel while I was there rather than short stories, because I was like, "If I'm ever going to write a novel, it'll be in this two years where I, you know, all I have to do is teach." Teach undergraduates composition and read and write. And so, I was, so I wrote the beginning of this novel there, and my professors there encouraged me to find an agent who was like, "Yes, we can find a publisher." And basically, I'm still waiting for someone to knock on my door and be like, "It was an error. Um, please, please go back to. You need to revise your economics, which is never <laughs> used." Um, but yes, yeah, so it was. I think even. This book came out a few years ago, but even now, when I sort of go into Waterstones or Daunt and I like see it, I'm like, it's there, it's real, <laughs> and so yes, I'm still in a state of shock. It, it sounds like imposter syndrome, mm. and I think most people, irrespective of whatever profession they're in, um, might feel that at some point that you can't quite believe you're doing what you do. Do you think that's unique, or or harder felt for women? And I'm sure the men in the audience will have questions on this, <laughs> but but I do believe that certainly for me in my profession as a, as a broadcaster, there isn't a day that goes by where I believe my editor is going to tap me on the shoulder and say, "I'm sorry, it's not you. We've made a mistake." Have you ever felt that I can't quite believe I got here? My books were available to buy. People read my books and invite me on national television or national radio. Does, do you feel that? Yeah, I mean, it's, if you think about it, the, I think it's 97% of people who start writing a book never finish it. Uh, that's 97% of Americans uh, who start writing a book. Apparently, only three percent of people who start actually finish it. So to have actually finished a novel, finished a book, mm -hmm. and it's published and people are reading it, it's it is quite surreal. Um, and uh, you know, you just you just feel really blessed, really, um, that you have been able to do something that so many people dream of doing. Uh, you know, all around the world, you know, so many people say, I'll write a book, I want to write a book one day. I've got a book inside me. I've been writing a book for the past 10 years. Um, and uh, so to actually have your books there and, you know, people come and they say they've read them and, you know, I really love this one and my children love this one. It's, it's, it's surreal and, and a very, I think it's a very, um, it's a big blessing. It's a big blessing. Yeah. We spoke earlier about identity in your writing. I want to talk about 
a spiritual identity and how important you think it is to involve that in your writing. Is it very deliberate or does it come very naturally? Jackie, you spoke about yeah. your relationship with God. Yeah. Is that at the core of your writing? Is that the thing that drives you? Yes. Um, and like I said, I think it, it's because for me what's important is my relationship with him and these these writing brings me closer to him so that's that that is at the core but very a very close second is i mean you asked you know what's the end result for you didn't you in the first half what who are you thinking of um and for me it's it's the most vulnerable and it's the most marginalized in our world that's the if people can think differently and about taking care of those people, that for me is, is the most important thing it's about. And that's what I want church to be. I want church to be relevant and to be looking after each other and especially the most vulnerable and the most marginalised. Rowan, how does your beliefs, your faith, how, how, how do you mix that with your writing if you do at all? So I don't, it's not usually the place I start consciously, um, but so I, my, one of the things I kept a lot was the Shintoism in my family, but the, we didn't grow up in a large Shinto community, there was just my mom explaining what her dad had explained to her, so this may not be representative, um, but it's a Japanese religion, um, and sort of largely it was organized from a bunch of nature religions and the way I was taught to understand it is essentially that everything has a spirit, um, sort of plants have spirits, rocks have spirits, trees have spirits, some things are particularly holy or particularly special but if any of you have seen the Mary Kondo show, um, you know when she like thanks the clothes? That's not just her being quirky, that's a tenet of Shintoism that when an object serves you, you thank it and you treat it with respect, which is something that we sometimes forget to do with other human beings, so it would be good to remember to do generally. And I think being asked to do that is being asked to feel empathy, and um, empathy for things that, you know, a tree cannot tell you how it feels, <laughs> um, it cannot. Um, and I think I'm not always perfectly empathetic. Sometimes I am very much in a hurry and in my own head and I'm probably rude and I do not acknowledge people enough. But to have be reminded, no, you should be acknowledging things, you should be thanking things, um, was very important to how I, the person I want to be. And the person I want to be as a writer is someone who is empathetic in that way and my characters, tend not to be very perfect people. They tend to be people who make very big mistakes and do the wrong thing. But I didn't want to ever write them as villains. I wanted to know why they were doing it and what they were doing. And, in you know, I try not to be, like, preachy in my books. They are stories. But, you know, if, if they help people feel empathy, that would be the best thing to me. I guess. So it's a slightly sideways coming in of faith and belief. But yeah. I didn't know that about Marie Kondo. Anybody who's watched the series knows that 
she sparks joy a lot, but actually I didn't know, I thought it was a quirk of her, so I'm, I'm no. really thankful you told that story. Yeah, she used to work in a Shinto temple, so it, she, she is very much believes in it, um, and probably knows much more about it than I do in the, in the, in the context of the I like the idea of thanking your clothes, though. <laughs> yes. Um, Nima, you spoke earlier about the haram and the halal in your writing and finding that equilibrium because you're never going to please everybody. How do you find that equilibrium? And and do I does your faith govern your writing? Um, okay, if I would have to say that yes, I have limits that maybe other authors wouldn't have, and those limits are because I'm a Muslim. Uh, and I believe in in doing the right thing and that, you know, not doing the wrong thing or calling people to the wrong thing uh, as, as far as, you know, my religion is concerned. So definitely I have limits. Um, Would you uh, be willing to uh, tell us what I'll tell you what was a really difficult one, actually, that I really struggled with, and that was swearing. Because when I was writing Black Sheep, um, street language is f bombs. Like, like it's just it's just normal, you know. Uh, it's not even a thing. Um, and I knew that to be authentic to the context, there would have to be some swearing, right? But I just couldn't do it. That's the truth. I just couldn't do it. I could not put the f word in my book. And I know other YA authors do, uh, and they they put all the words in there because that's how kids speak. But for me, I just could not face. I'm sorry, I'm going to be just 100% transparent. I couldn't face a, a Muslim kid or a mum who, you know, kind of thinks that, you know, I'm a good influence generally coming up to me and saying, how could you put this filth in the book? You know, and so I, I kind of sidetracked. I went this way and I went that way. I popped the B word in there, you know, and I kind of, hopefully I didn't get anyone saying this doesn't sound real because it doesn't have swearing in it, but that's just an example. Is there a hierarchy of swear words that you use? So yes. There's, there's a, an acceptable Isn't there a hierarchy? Sorry, is that just me? Of course there is a hierarchy. <laughs> uh, yeah, I think there is a hierarchy. Okay. So, I mean, when I put the B word, I was like, whoa, whoa, because I don't swear, personally. I, I, just don't, I just don't. I don't let my children swear. I wouldn't let anyone swear around me. So it, it, it is a tension. Um, and sometimes I may get it right, sometimes I may get it wrong, but I feel there's certain lines that I'm not prepared to cross as an individual. And I don't want that to be what I put out into the world. I'm prepared to put certain things out into the world. And if you've read any of my novels, anyone read any of my novels here? Okay, one or two. So if you've read in my novels, you'll know that they don't shy away from some really heavy topics, some really taboo issues, you know, things that in general, certainly in our community, do not talk about. So I go there, but I'm okay to do that because it's in the context of the story and I know that it works itself out. So for me, the overarching theme should always be ending with hope. That has to be. There has to be hope of healing, there has to be hope of coming back. There has to be hope of getting back up again when you fall. And that's for all my protagonists, no matter how far they go, there has to be this idea that you can always come back, that you can always, if you've got another day to live, you have another chance. So that, I guess, is always present. Um, and, I, and I don't think I could write a novel that didn't have that sense of hope and that sense of, you know, it's okay. You know, we all make mistakes, we all fall and, 
you know, there's always an opportunity to come back and, you know, to, to forgive and to be forgiven and to heal and to, and, to, and to make amends, I guess. I think it's really interesting when you talk about a responsibility to the children who read it, mm. to your readers, the parents of those readers, especially for, for, for young adults. Um, do you feel, and Jackie and Rowan, do you feel that you are now role models because you're successful in your, in your writing? Um, my books are full of swear words. But I mean, I, I've started, um, I teach, so I guess in, one, in my role as a teacher, I feel very, it's very important to me to be a role model and to not say be like me, but help them find the person they want to be. And um, I also do some mentorship with a program called Arts Emergency, which which with um, young people in schools which wouldn't have access to creative networks otherwise. And in that case, my role is not just saying like, oh, your story, what about this bit, what about this bit, but talking to my mentee about sort of the future of her writing and how she might make it part of her life and being very realistic, not necessarily saying like, yes, you will be JK Rowling, because it would be great if she is, but talking about how she can share it, what she can do, thinking about ways that her life can be compatible with writing. And so in a, I'm not sure that in a sort of grand pop star way, one feels like a role model, but it's just in the little commun community connections you have, maybe. Jackie, is that I, something you feel? I don't. I don't really think of myself as a, a role model as such. But I, um, what I really get excited about is when people go off and do the same thing, you know, um, because quite often when we go, we work with churches or whatever, or with aid agencies, whatever, people will say, "Oh, no, drama is not for me. That is not something that I want to do." Um, and during the course of the training workshop or whatever, we always give them a chance to go and do it and to, to write their own and to and to perform their own and everything. And they always do it really, really well. So, and that that's just brilliant. So, I don't know if that's being a role model or not, but it's just it's just encourage people to do the same thing and, and for them to realise that they can and do it really well. Who are you? So you talk about mentoring. You talk about um, showing people, or, or perhaps encouraging them to do their their own thing. Who are those people for you, Naima? Was there somebody that that helped usher you and kind of steer you in in your path to being an author? The short answer to that is no. <laughs> uh, yeah, no, no. Um, I started writing at a time when my first child was very young. I was a stay-at-home mum. No one in my community wrote books. Um, later on, my dad became very involved, and he's my, one of my beta readers every time. But no, I didn't have any mentors. I was self-taught. I found out stuff online, um, you know, just did my research online about the children's book industry. I did it for a year, actually, just just reading blogs and, and, and practicing and writing utter trash, uh, you know, for a year and trying to send things and submit things. But no, I didn't have any mentors. Is there anybody that you talk to now? Um, no, I, I mentor other writers. Uh, I don't have a mentor of my own. Unfortunately, you should always have a mentor. But no, I, I see myself very much 
in the custodian role for you know writers in my community uh, who maybe have seen my work and would like to do something similar or something different and it's my privilege to be able to share that with them through training or coaching or you know online courses and stuff like that so I, f it's, I think it's paying it forward really I think um, is, is really important and just for people to see that it can be done and someone is willing to be to be there for them and available to say this is what you need to do this is, this is this is the path you need to take you know avoid these things try to do those things and you know you'll get there in the end I think it's, it's quite important mm. well, and is there anybody that you speak to now about your writing um, yeah so I did have professors who encouraged me when I was mm -hmm. younger but mostly it's just friends who are writers who we don't necessarily you know tell each other this is how your book should be but you meet up with and you have coffee and they say, how's your publicity going? I don't know if my publicity is right. <laughs> um, or, you know, they can say, my editor hates my title. <laughs> you know? Um, and I think that, you know, it's silly, but also writing is a pretty lonely business sometimes. You know, you don't have an office full of people around you. And so every now and then to be able to find someone who shares your struggles is very invigorating and exciting um, and it makes you feel less alone so I think there's no one in my life that I guess it's called peer mentoring now is I think the correct term um, but you know also friendship um, and so there's no one higher up but there's a lot of crossways in my life. Jackie do you speak to other writers? Um, for help or inspiration or advice? Not so much. Not so much other writers. But I was thinking, for me, um, the person who's had most influence on me was um, the, the minister in my church when I first came back to faith because I, I went right away from my faith. I, I, I was brought up in a Christian home, but I didn't. it obviously didn't go very deep because when I went to uni... I completely went away from it and lived without any relevance, reference to God and made some bad decisions, including with my marriage. And so, but then years later when the marriage had all gone wrong and I was in a crisis and I, I befriended this a Christian family and they took me back to church and that was, and that was when I, I gained a faith in a real way, um, a much deeper way. And the, the, the man who was in charge of that church was a writer and an actor, and um, he spotted something in me and, and encouraged it and enabled me to, to just to sing and to act and then ultimately to write as well. And he's, I'm sort of still in touch with him, although he lives on the other side of the world, but he, he has been a big inspiration for me. I have one last question before we'll open it up. Um, what's the best bit of advice you were ever given in, in, in being a writer? Oh, wow. I was eyes, eyes were really wide then. It's <laughs> like... Wow. <laughs> Do you have some advice um, that you were given? I'm, I don't know. I, I just... I, I, just I don't know. I just remember when I was researching children's books always being told do not write anthropomorphic characters. What, what does that mean? What? 
<laughs> I, I ask I don't know okay. like, anthropomorphic mean? characters are animals that act like human beings you know those children's books where it's Chippy the Chipmunk and this mm. and that I just remember that being dr- just drummed into us do not write anthropomorphic characters. Now, of course, you've got all these wonderful books like, you know, uh, how, Mama, Do You Love Me? And, you know, Guess How Much I Love You? You know, Oh, To The Moon And Back, and all the <laughs> rabbits, chipmunks, bears, 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 cats, dogs, everywhere. But for some reason, that stuck with me. So even when I have students that give me children's books with anthropomorphic characters, I'm like, you know what, I can't deal with this. <laughs> Talking animals? No. <laughs> We're just not doing that. I don't know. That's the only thing that sticks that I remember. And it stuck with me. I have never written any animal characters that speak. And I never will. <laughs> I'm thinking about all the Disney films that I love of lobsters and um, Stitch. Where does Stitch fit into that? I don't know. But they were so hardcore on that. They said, do not write these stories. You will never get published. Publishers don't want to see that. It is so last season. Do not do it. And so I just can't. I, like, I can't. I literally cannot even. No. <laughs> so that's all I've got to add to this discussion. Um, what, what was a piece of advice that was given to you that, that may or may not have helped you with your writing? Okay, this advice was not given to me in a class or by a professor. It was given to me by one of my best friends. And I still think it's the, one of the best pieces of advice I've been given, which is, he said, so, you know, some stories, it's like, is this going to happen or is this going to happen? And he's like, doesn't matter. It'll feel predictable. Like, even if your reader couldn't technically have predicted it, if it's like A or B, and you end up at A or B, they'll be like, ah, I saw that coming. And you need to have some third thing. Um, maybe it's the part of what happened, maybe it's it goes in another direction, but it can't just be like, will he marry her, yes or no? Will that person die, yes or no? Because you... Two different things can both feel predictable at once. Mm-hmm. And it clicked in my head and I went, oh, okay. And I think that really helped me in some way. Is that, is that the plot twist? It's not really, it doesn't have to be a plot twist, Steve. It, it doesn't have to be like a big reveal. It's just, you, those, you know those books where the question is like, you know, like the will, will he marry her, yes or no? Which it's not very satisfying if it's just like they, they, they like get married. There has to be something more complicated, something that comes in later into the story that makes us understand the ending differently, even if it is A or B. I'm maybe not describing this right, but would it be like, is it will he marry her? Option A is yes. Option B is no, and option C runs away with her mum. Yeah, right. Option C is right. Um, <laughs> yeah, and, and it doesn't have to be. You find out in the last chapter. You know, okay. it can be. But it's just you can't set up a story where sort of. I think when I was this is he, this is a friend of me when I was quite young and when I was a young writer and you know you would I would write a story. Um, and he'd be like, okay, yeah, I, well, character wants to do something, and it's just, will they succeed or won't they succeed? And he's like, oh, I don't really care. <laughs> you need to tell me. I need something new by the end of it. You already, by bringing up the question, I already have both endings in my head already. That's I need a new thing. Yeah. And I, I like that. I've, I still like that. I don't know if I explained it right then. No, I got that. No, I'm just very disappointed that your third option was not running away with a talking animal. <laughs> <laughs> but we'll come back to that. Um, Jackie, what was a piece of advice that, that you were given that has helped you? Um, I'm really struggling. I think, I mean, 
What is I think it? It's, I think it's just giving myself. It's stay close to the scripture. I think from the particularly for my sort of writing, which is basically based on script, is stay close to the text. Don't, and be true to yourself and be true to those characters, really. Mm-hmm. I think, yeah, that's it. I think being Nothing true to more. the characters is yeah. really big, actually. Yeah. I think that being true to the characters yeah. and not making characters do what you think they should do. Yeah. Because I don't know whether you experience this, Rowan, you know, being a fiction writer, that your characters are separate entities. Do you feel that? Because mm. I, I start out a story thinking I know my characters because I've thought of them, right? And I remember with Boy versus Girl, this was huge because I had these a, a twin boy and girl and I knew the girl, she was going to be, you know, really academic, clever Asian girl and her twin brother is like almost the opposite. And I thought I knew him until I started having a conversation with him. And I discovered all this stuff about him that I had no idea. Like, it sounds really strange, but as, because I do this exercise with my characters where I sit down, okay, so tell me about yourself. I'm like this, why? And we go in, why, why, why? And I discovered that he was gifted in art, that he was on the autism spectrum, that he had never had confidence because when he was learning Quran as a child, he had a stammer. So he was never able to finish his Quran studies and this was a source of shame for his father and his father just never thought he would measure up and all of this stuff that came out that wasn't there in my original conception of him. So when you have characters, what you were saying about being true to the character, it really is, again, going under the skin and do, what would that character do? Mm-hmm. Not do, what do I want them to do as the, 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 the novelist? What do I need them to do for my story? It's more, no, really, what would this character do in this situation, knowing the character as you do? And if you don't know what they would do, you need to have more conversations with them. You need to get under their skin more so that you can realistically say, this is A, B or C, no talking animals. <laughs> Does anybody have any questions for our panel? Um, I have a hand at the back. Hi, what's your name? Hi, I'm Patricia. Hi. Yeah, um, I was going to ask, um, I'm not trying to phrase this, because um, you were talking earlier about um, how like, your religion and faith informs your writing, and if it ever, like, how you set a limit to yourself, right? Or, like, are there certain things that you can't talk about? Like, if it ever feels like a. I don't know if like self-censorship in a way like how you deal with like like there's some not just in terms of language but like certain themes or characters that you can't quite venture into like like how you kind of reconcile that i can't say i've reconciled it it's a tension uh, <laughs> um i had a, an idea for a dystopic feminist novel and I'm so cross because actually Stephen King and his son have actually gone and done it. So I'm so <laughs> cross. But I had written about 60,000 words. And it was a world where the women had, there was an exodus, and the women had left the society completely. They had all left. And they'd left behind this male community which had turned completely feral. It was, you know, like masculinity on testosterone kind of thing. It was, you know, it was like, you know, on, on, on steroids, basically. It's steroids on testosterone on steroids as well. But anyway, the story was that these women had gone and formed a feminine-based society and that there was a tension between sort of the nature the nature versus nurture uh, feminists because they were feminists by this time and it was a whole big story it would have been a, it would have been an amazing film but i could not write the level of sexual violence that there was in that story i i couldn't do it because it's not one of the limits that you talked about I, I, yeah i couldn't do it and and 
you know because you read it and he and so upset with me for not having told the story but I for myself and also for me as an author I just felt I can't do justice to this story because I knew what the characters would do because there was an invasion so come on guys come on like seriously like it's going to be awful and I just thought I can't do that and now Stephen King's gone and done it so it's, it's not reconciled at all. It's just that's what it is for me. And maybe others have got you know, another way of dealing with it. But I'm not saying you should do that. I'm just being real with you to say that that's where I'm at right now. And you know, I, have to, I have to deal with that, I guess, as an artist and as a creative and stuff. I, I mean, the faith I grew up with was very open. And it was very, there was. No, I never really had a sense that as long as I, like as long as I didn't hurt anybody, I was, you know, I always felt like I could do and think what I wanted to do and think. But I think what does get me sometimes is representation. So um, my second book that's coming out this July is about love and it's about mental illness. And one of the challenges I had while drafting it is... um, one of the two main characters suffers from a pretty serious um, medical depression. And she also makes some very bad choices, not as a depressive, but as a person. Um, and that interacts with her mental illness, but I did not want the book to be saying depressive people make bad choices or make these specific bad choices. Um, there's some infidelity in the book, and I wasn't trying to say having depression will make you have do this. And I sort of, I spent a lot of time sitting with myself thinking, how how can I write about this and write about it truly and honestly without making this character like an idealized, unreal person, but also not making them a negative caricature or saying anything bad about a huge group of people? And I realized that I was underestimating the character because although she makes some bad choices, she's smart. And I thought, and she knows these things about herself and she knows about the discourses in the world. And I thought, hey, it would be very unrealistic of me to have her not think about this and, um, and, uh, and not think like, will people think I'm doing it because of this? Am I this person? And allow her to engage with some of that complex complexity. Like, also things happen, it's not just her thinking about that. Um, but, and that was how I found what felt like to me the right way out and the right way through. But it wasn't that I wanted to censor myself precisely, but I wanted to make sure that the story I was writing did not further people's prejudice. I, you know, I wanted it to be an opening rather than a closing, if that makes sense. Does that answer your question, Trish? Yeah. Anybody else? Any more questions? Is it your opportunity to pick the brains of some very established, esteemed authors? Yes. Hi. Um, I'm not very good at particular questions, so we'll see. Nor am I. It's okay. Um, We're in good hands. <laughs> What's your name? Fiona. Fiona. Um, so I guess, uh, so I went to a, a storytelling event a few weeks back, and it was by a man who was telling a story. It was Gilgamesh, which I'd never heard before. An incredible story, but there were bits of, of sort of sexual violence in it, and that was sort of triggered by something he was saying. And, um, and the way that he was telling the story made me feel like really uncomfortable and he was sort of, it was like he was kind of enjoying retelling these bits of sexual violence. That's how it felt for me. And I had a sort of argument with my friends that I went to see it with and they were someone saying, well, you know, it's 
we need to tell these stories as they were told, mm. you know, and we need to be true to the story and this kind of pure storytelling, um, art of storytelling about telling it exactly as it, as it was and so on. And I was thinking about your retellings of um, character, biblical characters as well and like, what is our responsibility mm. to like choose which stories we do and don't we tell and like which, which stories you choose to, and which characters you, you pick out and mm. how that relates to your, yeah, your yeah. experiences. Um, and also, I guess, yeah, in the kind of, to what degree do we, we, you know, how do we escape reaffirming like, violence when we write about it? And mm. that, I don't know. But. I think it's, if I can just say something really quickly, I think, you know, every novelist has their own code, I guess, and has their own their own standard, their own principles, what they believe is right, what they're happy to do. And, you know, you could argue that certain books and films and maybe plays have played into certain ideas. I remember my father, who is a Marxist, and if you know anything about Marxist theory, you know, art is not there just for art's sake. Art has a principle, art has a reason. Art is actually there to teach and lead, right? So he was arguing about, I think it was The Girl with the Dragon Tattoo. Has anybody read that? I think there's a lot of violence in that book, isn't there? I haven't actually read it myself, but a friend of mine was telling me about it. And for somebody, some people will be repelled by that. For other people, it's exciting. And that's just the reality. So you as a novelist, it's up to you to decide, am I okay to put this out there? Some people may read this and find this extremely titillating or extremely, you know, and give them all sorts of ideas. Other people, it may trigger them. Other people, it may, you know, put them off the book completely. And I think every novelist makes that, that choice for themselves because it's not easy. It's like in film. How graphic do you get? And for what purpose? I think many of us can tell in a film when the violence is gratuitous, when the sex is gratuitous, or when a rape is gratuitous. It's filmed in a particular way, there's particular music, there's particular focus, whereas if someone is trying to show it in a way that repels us, they will choose to describe it differently. And I think the same is, with, uh, is, is in fiction, well, in, in our writing. So it really is, it's all fine lines, I think. Um, Jackie, you're nodding. Yeah. But, well, I know I'm, I'm thinking about it that, yes, um, uh, thinking about how I choose who I write about, it is to bring out a certain issue that I want the audience to think about and do something about. But I think, to be honest, I, I could be braver than I have been so far because there's some, you know, there's some really horrible stuff going on in our world. And it happens biblically as well. You know, mm-hmm. it's in there. It's in the Bible. It's you know, particularly the Old Testament, it's pretty graphic stuff, and I think I need to be a bit braver in my writing as well and tackle some of those things. And I think that is probably something I will do in the future. Yeah. Do you feel that we need to document events like sexual violence or domestic violence or violence against it and anybody in a way that's Authentic because the stories need to be told, or do you self censor? I mean, you talk about something being gratuitous, Noma, but surely if we don't tell these stories, if we don't have accounts, real life accounts mm. that are featured in writing, then it's a form of censorship, no? Mm. Rowan, what do you think? I mean, I think 
There's a difference between saying I am banning a book and saying this is not a book I enjoy and it's not a book I support and I think we should all I'm very suspicious of banning books but I think it's very reasonable to say for any number of reasons this is not a book for me and even this is not a book that supports values that are mine um, and letting other people make that choice for themselves I think in terms of sort of some of the specific stuff we've been talking about I am a big believer in talking about the darker parts of life. I have found it incredibly healing to read books about certain types of pain, but I think it is important to know why you're doing it. So in this book, there is some domestic violence, and it was one of the things that it was most important to me to get right. Not literally, like, not that I wanted to copy something I read in a newspaper literally in the same way, but I I spoke to people who've um, been victims of domestic violence, and I also just listened to a lot of recorded testimonies, and most of that didn't make it into the book. You know, most of that is not there, but I wanted to write about it in a way where if someone read it who had been through that, they would see themselves and they would see themselves understood so a character stays with someone who abuses them for a number of years and they're not locked in a room they could hypothetically leave and get on a train and they don't and i think that that is true of a lot of victims of domestic abuse and it's not because they're stupid they're smart people but there are reasons and the reasons for this character are different from the reasons of any number of other people but to show that happening and to show why a particular person was feeling that felt very important to me I would not have written the book from the point of view of the, well, I have beliefs about why the abusing character does the abuse, and I think that often there are long chains of it, that I don't interact with it in this case, but if I wrote about abuse from the abuser's point of view, I would want to be writing in a way where I was showing the pain it was coming from, I was showing that it was the wrong choice, and yet why this character was doing it. I wouldn't want to be writing about it in a, ooh, isn't this fun? Because it's not. Um, and I think, to me, when you're honest about violence, about difficult things, even when you're trying to see it from the point of view of the violent person or the person doing wrong, it's not... The language may be beautiful, the book may be a joyful thing, but the violence itself is not joyful. Um, some, there's beauty in other parts, there's hope in other things, yeah. but not in that, to me. And that's when it doesn't feel gratuitous when I read it in other people's work. Mm -hmm. Fiona, has that answered mm -hmm. your question? I think we have time for one quick one, if anybody has. Hi. So my question is, what, what are your um, kind of uh, advice for anyone that's an aspiring writer, and when you get um, writer's block, what do you do? Oh, that's a good question. Writer's block. Advice I, and writer's block. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so let's start with the advice. What advice would you give to budding writers? Um, I always tell budding writers to, there's three things. One, connect with the why of why you're writing, why you want to write, and kind of get real with yourself about what it means to you. And the reason I say that is writing takes time. 
it's a process, especially to get good at it and to see results, you need to give it time. And if you want to give it time and see results, it needs to be above the level of a hobby. Uh, so for it to be above the level of a hobby, you need to have some deeply held reason for why it's important for you to write. If it's a childhood dream, if it's a bucket list thing, if it's, uh, you know, unleashing your creativity, you know, being the change you want to see in the world, telling an untold story, standing up for truth, whatever. I mean, there's so many different reasons, but it needs to be something that resonates with you so that this journey becomes non-negotiable for you. It's now elevated above, oh, it's a side hustle, it's a side thing, you know, it's just a hobby. It's something I believe in, I'm committing to, and I want to see whatever success looks like for you. So the first is to get clear on your why. The second is to give yourself permission. Actually, the first is to give yourself permission. And that just means allowing yourself to write without censorship and without thinking, I'm not good enough, uh, I'll never get published, uh, people will judge me if they read what I'm writing, you know, I'm, you know I'm, this is a load of rubbish. The first person that gives you permission is you. So you give yourself permission, get clear on your why, and then write privately. I think that's a really important step, and I, I always advise writers to do that. You need to establish a safe space for your writing. So start with private writing, just you and the page, every day. Well, what does that look like mm. in practical terms? Is it a stream of consciousness? Whatever. Do you have a subject? Whatever, a, whatever. A word limit? If you need prompts, use prompts. If you want to describe your day, describe your day. If you want to start writing a story, do it. But just 10 minutes every day where you're not thinking about anyone reading it. That's the key. That's what makes it a safe space. As soon as you allow yourself to start thinking of what people will say when they read it, who will read it, you know, what their thoughts will be, will anybody read editors, publishers, all of that stuff, it interferes with your process and it will become one of the reasons why you don't start. You know what I'm saying? Because you're just thinking, your, your head is going crazy with all limiting beliefs and uh, you know, asking yourself all these doubting questions. So to start off with, establish a safe space to get into the habit of expressing yourself through the written word. And then once you get to the stage where you feel, I'm ready to share this, it's entirely up to you. You don't ever have to share your writing with anyone in your whole life. It will still perform what it needs to perform for you. It will still achieve the desired effect which is for you to express yourself. Then when you're ready to share, share it in the safest space that you can find. But those three things, if you're just starting out, that's what I always advise people. Give yourself permission, get in touch with your why, and start writing in a safe space, just private writing every day. Jackie, what advice would you give? Um, yeah, I don't think I could put it better than that. I think that's, <laughs> that, um, that, I think that's beautiful, what you've just said. Um, I think... I think the only thing I would say to add to that, and thinking about the writer's block thing, mm. that, which I found is, I often sort of think to myself, yeah, I'm not feeling creative today, I can't do it, I can't do it today, but I think, I think the advice to say, do it anyway, mm -hmm. just sit down and do it anyway, because you will find that it, it will probably come, it will probably come, yeah. Well, and what advice would you give? Um, I find that there are some days where you look at the page and you go, ah, and you try to write, and it's not bringing you, you're not excited by the words, and you're not excited by the joy, and something I found really helpful is to say, okay, for this hour, I'm not allowed to go online, 
I'm not allowed to do chores. I'm not allowed to eat. But what I do, I'm allowed to snack, but not allowed to like go cook, <laughs> bake, you know. Um, but what I do let myself do in that time, because it's what reminds me of why I love writing, is I say, you can read. Like, if this hour, all you do is read a beautiful book, that's fine. Don't be angry at yourself. Mm -hmm. Think about why it was beautiful, why it moved you. And maybe that lesson will come out in your writing later. And I pretty much always find I want to write because I've read this thing and I'm excited about it and I like I want to do I want I'm like oh that thing you did with dialogue could that work for me or you know oh god I you know haven't been looking so hard at this particular aspect of craft now I'm excited and I want to be doing it I want to be making that work whereas if I let myself get distracted and look at my email mm -hmm. I'm doomed <laughs> um, and so yeah I find that really helpful for me yeah, just uh, one I think Seth Godin said about writer's block he said does anyone get speaker's block like have you ever had talker's block <laughs> like you don't think of yourself as having speaker's block or talker's block and writing is just speaking but on the page so in a way if you can try to think of it that way to say okay whatever it is that you're writing if you were going to say it how would you say it and you didn't just type it because you can never run out of things to say Right? I guess, can you? I'm going to stay here until midnight and we still have something to say, you know? So if you think about it that way, because people do have this thing, writer's block, capital W, capital B, it's a thing. But Seth Godin just like trashes it. He says, you never get speaker's block. Like, do you get run out of things to say? No, you don't. So how can you run out of things to write about? Go and write. Go, go and do it. Stop making excuses. That's kind of his, his take on it. But, you know, I like, I like your suggestion a lot of just getting some creativity in so that you can bring something beautiful out on the other end. I think that's really lovely. We haven't, we haven't got time, but it's really interesting that reading appears to be a large part of the writing process. Uh, so a really good place to stop. I think the speakers we don't we run out of we have a run out of words, but we have run out of time. Um, if people want to get in touch with you privately, what's the best place, the best platform? How do they do that? Uh, I'm Naima B. Robert on all platforms: Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, um, and um, yeah. If you're looking to write, or if you've got a book in you and you're interested in um, working with me. I do work with one-on-one -on -one with clients and stuff. So if you're interested in that, please just hit me up on any of those platforms. Um, yeah, I'm here to help. Jackie? I think for me, probably through Mosaic Creative, through the organisation, um, I've got cards. We have a website. Um, and she has books say. here for sale oh, yeah, as well. Oh, I was getting to that. Yes. We'll do. Rowan, how do they get in touch um, with you? So my Twitter is Rowan's, but R-W-A-N-H-L-B. And then my Instagram is Rowan's, but R-W-A-N. And then Hisa, so H-I-S-A, like the first half of my middle name. Um, and yeah, and pretty much if you put my name to Google and then write Twitter or Instagram, these things will come <laughs> up. Um, and that's, yeah. As Noma mentioned, uh, Jackie's books are available to buy tonight. Uh, your books are available at all the usual places, Rowan Noma. Uh, a round of applause, please, for our panel tonight. Thank you for coming out, and hopefully, we'll see you again soon.